This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Terry Tempest Williams. She's a writer, naturalist, and the Annie Clark Tanner Scholar in Environmental Humanities at the University of Utah. I spoke with her on January 17, 2011, from the studios of APM in St. Paul, Minnesota. She was in the studios of public radio station KCPW in Salt Lake City, Utah. This interview is included in our show, The Vitality of the Struggle. Download the MP3 of that produced show at onbeing.org. Hello. Hi, Krista. Hi, Terry. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Well, it's good to meet you finally, at least, uh, so to speak, this way. It's wonderful to meet you. I had actually finished your book about three weeks ago. The Einstein's Guidebook? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. And so you've been on my mind, and <laughs> I just, it was amazing when you called. So I really appreciated it. Well, you know, I've uh, been reading you and knowing you were out there for years and just kind of, you know, knowing that the moment would come. And, and then um, when we were talking last week about what we need to talk about in these weeks and months to come. Um, when your name rose to the top, I thought, that's it. This is the time. So here we are. I'm, I'm so <laughs> grateful. And, you know, what happened on, you know, Saturday mm-hmm. in Tucson was so devastating. I have family there. And it just, when your call came in, it really gave me a focal point to really think. Oh, good. In in a constructive way, so I thank you for that as well. Okay, I well, loved yesterday's um, interview. With Don Polkinghorne? Yeah, oh. I just, I thought that was amazing. Oh, good. And I love how he incorporated God in science, mm-hmm. and it made me just think about, do I really believe in God and how far mm-hmm. I'd moved, you know, off the platter, so to speak. But I just, I loved the space that he created for that, of a world becoming, didn't you? Yeah, and also when I... Um, when I was just listening, just when we were putting it in production last week to put it back on the air, I was, with all this stuff that's been on my mind about our common life and, you know, how we live together um, and how, how, how difficult it seems right now, um, mm-hmm. uh, there were things in it that jumped out at me in a completely different way, like his idea that in science um, there's a realization that it's, it's always at the edges of chaos that things actually happen that things mm-hmm. move, that you can't have too much chaos, but that that some chaos also becomes a catalyst for change. Mm-hmm. So that was also, re- I mean, I love that when you get, um, when you get insights out of science that you can apply in all these ordinary spaces. And I mean, I think you, you get into that in your writing as well, too. Well, I just loved it. And I loved the angle that it came in because it cracked everything wide open. Mm. Well, let's not talk anymore. I'm afraid we're going to okay. say something that... I- yeah, quick. Let's roll. Oh, wait, I've been rolling. Uh, yeah, but I do have a quick question for you, um, Tara. If you could just back off your mic a touch. Okay. We're getting a little bit, uh, a little bit of pee popping and stuff like that. So you can just relax and back off a little bit. Okay. As long as you can still hear yourself and Krista. I can. So I, I want to say I want us to talk about all the things that you have been on your mind and your heart and that have been raised. I, I think it's important that we not let uh, Tucson be the focal point, you know. It, it is this moment that kind of stopped everybody in their tracks. But what I'm aware of as I'm, I'm having other conversations this week is that 
making that the point becomes problematic because because well you know the, most simply the 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 wor- the main thing that went wrong in that moment was a mentally ill person pulled a trigger right right now we all know that <laughs> i think we know i think all of us know that there's a lot more happening but um but i think that that did become a moment of reflection and it's it's created new vocabulary and new conversations and that's the conversation we want to have about these things that predated Tucson and will, you know, I think that we're going to be living into for a long time to come. And that you've actually been writing about for years, honestly. So. And Krista, the one thing I would add to that is it takes on a different cast living in the interior West uh-huh. because I think we've been living with this for a long time. And, you know, my uncle is a captain of the Minutemen on the border of Tucson. My brother's working there because it's one of the few places where there's still work. So, you know, and the work I want to talk about in, in terms of Wyoming, I think it had a particular shadow because we see this in our communities in the interior West because it is, um, you know, the word vitriol. It's been here for a long time and it feels like it's increasing. So that that would be the only caveat I would say. Yeah. Okay. And I, I, I think that's kind of pretty kind of where I wanted to start. Um, I mean, where I always start my conversations, whoever I'm talking to, is hearing a little bit about the the, the spiritual background of your childhood. So okay. I want to hear about that. But then I, I did. I mean, it's clear to me that the fact that you grew up where you did, not just in in not just Mormon, right? Not just in that tradition, but in that place, mm-hmm. is formative. So let let's get into it that way. I mean, talk to me about growing up there where you did and in the in the world you did for me it begins and ends with landscape and i grew up in the interior west in utah salt lake city um with my back against the wasatch mountains as my spine Mm. religious freedom was the impulse, uh, five, six generations Mormon coming for spiritual sovereignty into the Great Salt Lake Valley when Brigham Young said, this is the place. My ancestors were right there behind him with their hand carts saying, yes, um, the ancestors, my ancestors' bones are buried here alongside my family. I also belong to a fourth generation uh, pipeline construction company, family business, the okay. Tempest Company. And so at our house, not only was Mormonism part of my religious background, but the weather was. Mm. And at 5.15, everything stopped at our house where my father would see if they were going to work or not. And mm. the infrastructure of the American West was really built on my family's backs and the backs of the men who worked there, laying pipe that natural gas could flow through, that water could flow through, um, sewage, uh, and now um, telephone lines and uh, fiber-optic cable. So the land held both the religious impulse and also the livelihood of my family. You know, just when I was thinking about talking to you, so I I grew up in Oklahoma, which is Mm -hmm. not the West. You know, Oklahoma Mm -hmm. is kind of... Not not the South. It's not Texas. It's not the West. But but it's it's heading in that direction, right? It is. And um, 
I, I've thought about this a lot. In, I don't think it has the, the rugged beauty, the raw beauty that, uh, that the places you come from does have. But there's something about that part of the country that's a little bit hard for me to explain. So now I live in the North, right? I live in the upper Midwest, and I've also lived in New England. That, 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 the, land, that the land is, is of, of course, you can find incredible beauty in it, but it's, it's never merely beautiful. It, it's daunting, right? Uh, you know, and my childhood was not, not just filled with flowers and streams and farms, but with poisonous snakes and tarantulas and, you know, and people in other parts of the world don't. So there's a, there's a hostility to nature, even as, um, as it is riveting and it shapes us. I think that's a great point. And I would add the companion to hostility is humility. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't take yourself seriously very long when you've got a raging blizzard or wind or, um, you know, whenever we live in Castle Valley, Utah, just outside uh, Moab and Arches National Park, and whenever I stick my hand into a closet and I hear this, I realize, uh-oh, pull back quickly, it's a black widow's nest. Right. You know, you're living with these creatures, um, as you say, and I love that because you grow up and you maintain this strong sense of community that it's not just human beings or homo sapiens, but it's it's all manner of creatures, rocks, rivers, um, plants, animals, and human beings under the umbrella of community. It's also one of the tenets that I really value still um, within Mormonism is that that larger sense of of the spiritual world that everything was created before and then it came to earth. I love huh. that Mormonism has both these mystic roots as well as a pragmatic uh, application. That's a powerful, com- you know, uh, compilation. Mm-hmm. You know, we grew up with really honoring the value of story and what a story that is that a 14-year-old boy um, has a question, what is the true church? He goes into the woods. What we were told was the sacred grove. He asks a question of God. God appears. He has a vision with a real response. No church is true. Create your own or restore the one that was lost. He acts on it and builds community. Growing up as a child, you are given that personal authority um, to have a personal relationship with God, which is a personal relationship with creation. Hmm. Mm. That mattered to me. It still does. So, in all of the confusion and um, tension of American life right now, um, there there is there is a dimension of uh, of geographic divides. Right? I mean, it's kind of hard to pin this down. You can't you can't say red states, blue states, and just it's not east west, right? But there, but you do come from a part of the country that, that has a very distinct identity, and you you are actually steeped, um, even in your work as an environmentalist, in, in some of these dynamics that we don't we I mean all of us as a collective don't really know how to grapple with, um, in terms of relationship to the government, um, hostility to the government, um, you know what, what what where is the line between individualism and common life and what really matters so. I mean, I'd like for you to to talk to me about that, about how you experience, oh, some of the big words that are being thrown around right now, like moral imagination, civil discourse, 
what are the challenges? What's what's been on your mind? Um, as and and what do you bring? What, what what insights do you bring? Also, what complexity do you see there, from being from, from standing where you do? First of all, I feel I have no insights. Um, <laughs> okay. Last week, I have to tell you, Krista, um, my husband Brooke and I were at a party, and someone said, "So what do you do?" And I said, "About what?" And they just looked at me like, excuse me, what planet do you live on? But it just showed me, you know, it's like, what do we do? What do we do? So I I feel like I have no insights. I'm just in the vitality of the struggle. And for me, you know, I go to words. I think words matter um, in the most profound sense, in the highest sense, in the deepest sense, and in the darkest sense. And the word that I keep hearing played over and over is vitriol. And I was thinking, what is vitriol? What does it mean? And I actually looked it up. And it was fascinating because it means um, an allusion to the corrosive properties of vitriol, which is a strong corrosive acid Mm. linked to sulfuric acid, um, clear, colorless, oily, water-soluble liquid um, that is produced from sulfur dioxide, which I thought was interesting, which is the toxic waste that comes from burning coal, Hmm. um, used chiefly in the manufacturing of fertilizer, chemicals, drugs, explosives, and (laughs) petroleum refining. And I thought, well, this is really interesting Um, because I think that the conversations that we so often have, and I have to tell you, you know, I don't have to go anywhere but my own family dinner table to find the seedbed of this, both the highest use of language and the lowest use of language with Mm -hmm. real vitriol. Because the people around our dinner table and our extended family do not all think the same. Um, So I have no illusion that we all have this common ground. You know, we have to really fight for that around our household. And we always have. But I love that. I love that my uncle and I can talk for two and a half hours and he can talk to me about what it means to be a captain on the border of Arizona and Mexico as a Minuteman. I love that my brother, who is laying pipe in Tucson, Arizona, tells me if there's going to be anarchy, it's going to happen here. I love that I have a a cousin, uh, Lynn Tempest, who was editor of the first uh, women's magazine in Salt Lake City, Utah, who gave a speech when she graduated from high school that I was red-faced over. It was so brave, and I wondered why I was such a coward. (laughs) I love that I had a grandmother who studied Jung in the privacy and secrecy of her turquoise study, and that we were always afraid to stay overnight because we knew that at the breakfast table she would say, and what did you dream? Hmm. So it's it's a diverse family. I love that my father wears cowboy boots that could kill spiders in corners. Um, <laughs> okay. But, you know, this is what I'm saying is it all happens around our family. And mm-hmm. there's a larger um, glue that holds us together, and that is love. So we're forced to listen to each other if we want the relationships to survive. But how do you think about it is precisely that, listening to each other and that relationship, um, that is missing when some of those very dynamics, those exact dynamics and qualities you listed, um, become uh, matters be, be, become transferred onto the into the political realm, right? right? When these become political differences, and in fact um, positions, but we don't know each other as human beings across these positions. I mean, right? There are caricatures now 
abundant caricatures on every side of our of our uh, public life. There's you know there's the the Tea Party caricature. There's the liberal elitist uh, establishment caricature. Um, but so what do you know? Let me just ask it this way: What do you know from living in your family, from being able to stay at the dinner table together? How, however me, humbly would you that left. you would offer up? Sorry, <laughs> there have been times I've left, so I don't mm-hmm. want to create any illusions. Mm-hmm. You know, again, it's it's personal, isn't it? We always hear that that the personal is political. You know, we now have a son, Louis Kakumba from Rwanda, um, black African. Can I tell you how that shook up our family dynamics? Um, being raised in a religion that. I have to say, is racist at its core. Um, that's not a statement I can say easily. You know, I grew up where um, African Americans could not hold the priesthood. Um, Native Americans, Indian people were called Lamanites. You know, you're raised that you are special. And suddenly, you know, the world becomes much larger and you think, wait a minute, why don't African-Americans, why can't they hold the priesthood? Finally, they now can. Um, Why don't women uh, hold the priesthood? They can't, will they ever? And these were the questions that I began to live with, um, not just in the American West, but as an American citizen growing up in the interior West. I say this just because it provides the background. Um, The specific example that I would give you, Krista, that that did offer insight for me because of what was created. And I think it offered some clues. I was asked to be writer in residence at the university of Wyoming in 2008 and 2009, working with the MFA program, creative writing program. These are not political students per se. They're poets, they're journalists, they're fiction writers, they're short story writers. When we got together, the students voiced a desire to take their writing out into the world, that it wasn't enough just to write for each other. And Wyoming, if it, if it was a nation, would be the third largest coal-producing nation in mm. the world. Mm. And no one lives in Wyoming without benefiting from that. Um, scholarships, good roads, um, good education, all on the backs of oil and gas and coal. They, the students said... What would happen if we gave readings and created a storytelling context to hear what people in these communities that are affected by oil and gas, coal bed methane, coal production, um, what would happen if we created an atmosphere where people could really talk about these stories and then write them? So we had a great organizer who uh, was a Peace Corps uh, He'd been in the Peace Corps in Namibia. He was a great community organizer, Alan Barstow. And together with the other students, organized eight, nine communities around the state of Wyoming where we would visit in a safe environment, usually a library or an arts uh, gathering. And the structure, the form, went like this. The students welcomed the community. There was a circle of chairs. Um, A student gave a reading. I gave a short reading. And we asked the question, what's the weather like in Cheyenne? What's the weather like in Rollins, Wyoming? What's the weather like in Pinedale or Casper or on the reservation of the Shoshone? Um, And what happened was extraordinary. 
we figured it would run from 7.30 till 9 at the latest. We found ourselves up till midnight. One, no one wanted to go home. The stories just kept coming. One of the librarians I remember in Pinedale, which is um, right at the heart of the Jonah Fields, where at night you could read a newspaper. There's so many lights from the drill rigs. They look like Eiffel Towers Mm -hmm. spread all across the sagebrush ocean. Um, One of the librarians said, sometimes I feel that I'm going to wake up and Wyoming will just be one great big hole. You know, imagine in Gillette, Wyoming, they call it Razor City, where coal is taken out on trains 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Let me quickly tell you a story. We were in Casper, Wyoming. Um, These gatherings, these weather reports, which is what we called them, were picking up steam. Pretty soon there weren't enough chairs to accommodate all the people who wanted to come. Wyoming isn't like Utah where it's community-based. These are ranches very far apart. It's hard scrabble country. It's very independently driven. Um, so people wanted to hear what other people were saying. Two men walked in, um, beer gut over belt buckles, um, belt buckles the size of, I would be exaggerating if I said a dinner plate, <laughs> but a dessert plate wouldn't be. And I turned around and I said to a woman I knew who was the editor of the Casper Star Tribune, should I be worried? And she said, um, you don't have time to be worried. Just be yourself. We sat down. I would learn that this was State Senator Kit Jennings, who was one of the key movers and shakers of the coal bed methane industry. We sat in a circle. A student gave a reading. I gave a reading. And then each person told their story, what the weather was like, what keeps them up at night. Hmm. We got to Senator Jennings, and he just looked at me, and he might as well have just fired a shotgun of words and saying, what business do you have coming to Wyoming from Utah? You are misrepresenting us. Um, Crystal meth usage has not gone up because of coal bed methane. And I mean, he just blasted me. I had the protection of the form of the circle, There were 75 people in that room, and everyone held the space while, talk about vitriol, he just spewed. But there was no response. We just held that space of deep listening. And then he realized he wasn't going to get a response that he wanted. He had an obligation to share. And the next thing we heard coming out of Senator Kit Jennings' mouth was, As a kid, I always resented being called white trash because my dad grew up in the oil and gas patch. Hmm. And then he really started talking about what his concerns were. Hmm. And we saw him as a human being, not as a stereotype, as you're saying, or as a mouthpiece of the oil and gas industry. And then he passed the microphone to the person sitting next to him. So you are a storyteller, and I... One of the things I feel like I'm doing now in these months is gathering tools um, to construct new kinds of conversations and relationship because I feel like as much as we call for civil discourse or call for civility, um, we don't have public, visible public models of how to have our debates and discussions differently. The, the models are out there, right? But the light isn't shining on them. Uh, they're, not, they're not high profile. So... So I spoke with Elizabeth Alexander a couple of weeks ago about poetry and different forms of language. And, and this, what you, the story, you know, what you just said is, 
gets at something I wanted to ask you, you know, if, if stories matter and are a way of telling the truth and talking about important things, um, you know, what's, what's your imagination about how we, how that can become part of our public collective way of speaking? I mean, you, you just gave me an example, I think. I think when we tell a story, it bypasses rhetoric and pierces the heart. It reminds us what it means to be human, that we all share in the vitality of the struggle. I think when we tell a story, it becomes the conscience of the community, and everyone becomes accountable for that knowledge which has been shared. What I can tell you with um, the end of that story is that Senator Kit Jennings was up for re-election, we all wanted him to lose, I'll be honest. He's very powerful. Um, and I got a call from the head of the Democratic Party in Wyoming and said, we all heard about what happened in Casper. It was reported in the, in the newspaper. It was also in the New York Times, actually. And she said, we know you have that tape because we know the students were, were videoing that mm-hmm. conversation. We'd like to have that tape so that we can run it on an ad and we know he would lose because a public servant should not be using that kind of language. Will you give it to us? Um, We decided, as students and and myself, no. That was private. That belonged to the form of that circle of deep listening that was part of the weather report, where people could trust that what was going to be said there would be held collectively as that community in that moment in time. And we didn't give that tape to the Democratic Party. And they were very, very upset, and they were upset with me. Senator Jennings doesn't know that story. But to me, that's at the heart of what we're talking about, is how do we build trust within our communities? And I think these are usually small gestures, but they loom large at the end of the day, because it asks each of us to say, what is the larger story? What is the story that we want to move forward? And I believe, Krista, that we do need a different story in terms of our civil dialogue, in terms of our civic discourse. And that story has to be one with empathy and respect and reflection. So I do want to go back to your family, and here, I want to ask the question differently again. So what did you say? You have an uncle who's a Minuteman on the... Right. He's much more conservative than you, right? He uh, is. Um, so so let's say you're talking to... Uh, I know you travel a lot. Let's say you're talking to someone in New England. <laughs> How? What might you offer from a, the story, from the fullness of the life of your uncle to round out uh, stereotypes that, that create fear and then just uh, perpetuate the, the vitriol that you and I were talking about? I mean, what comes to my mind is a wonderful man named Ray McDonald in Maine. Um, our family has a place there, and he, he's our neighbor, He's a, he loves deer. He loves bobcats. You know, politically, we couldn't be farther apart, but we love the land. I mean, he makes such fun of me because being a Westerner, I was walking through the woods and I saw this platform at the top of this balsam fir. And I thought, that is incredible that an artist would create an installation in this tree. You know, and I was saying, Ray, did you see that incredible platform? Do you know who created that? He goes, Terry, that's where I sit to 
hunt deer. Mm. Well, in the West, you hunt deer by because the largest tree are sage, which hit you at your <laughs> knee. You know, so it's these different cultural differences, and yet I understand you know, Ray McDonald because of my uncle, because of my brothers, because of my father, because even at 16 I held a, a rifle and and went deer hunting. You know, I think we find those commonalities and that can sound cliche, but it really isn't. It's it's how do we meet one another? You know, and it's it goes back to that story when we're at a dinner party or we meet someone, what do you do? You know, that's such a superficial question. <laughs> um, it's more, what do you see? You know, what do you love? Tell me the last time you were afraid. Um, that's when we get to the heart of, of the stories that really matter, that shape us. I mean, and in your life, there's a, there's a really defining trauma and tragedy of your life of cancer um, that has killed, what is it? Or you've had nine women in your family have had mastectomies and seven have died, including your mother, your grandmother. Um, you've been involved, um, you, you, you have, you, you've said that, you know, you can't, you can't draw a direct line. You can't say the government killed my mother, but you have been immersed in this history of open air nuclear testing, uh, that came downwind where you grew up in Southern Utah. It's hard not to draw some kind of connection. And you've also been involved, um, in very, very heated, complex, uh, uh, not just debates, but, you know, uh, the, pass, the, the debating and passage of laws the, about wilderness and about land and the line between the federal government and wilderness. And uh, I, I have to imagine that in all of that, you've, you've known what it is to be really angry. Um, You've certainly known what it is to be hurt and to be afraid. So tell me how you personally, out of those kinds of experiences, how do you move beyond those dynamics that are, that are also there in a wider way in our culture right now of anger, fear, and a feeling of being hurt? like no time at all, you know, time and space um, expand and contract with those that we love. Next week, it will be the, the sixth anniversary of my brother's death from lymphoma. So, you know, these issues of above-ground testing, nuclear testing, being a downwinder, a hibakusha, as the Japanese say, they're not abstractions. You know, we live with them every day. The personal becomes political. Um, as you said, nine women in my family have all had mastectomies, seven are dead. I made a decision to cross the line at the Nevada test site um, and commit civil disobedience and was arrested with many, many other um, members of, of the Utah community, of the Shoshone Nation, um, who've all been affected by, by nuclear fallout. You know, this is not just our family's story. Mm -hmm. And... 
I have been angry, and I'm still angry. And I think the challenge is, you know, how do we take that anger and transform it into sacred rage? I write. For me, um, art is a transformative medium, as poetry is um, to Elizabeth Alexander, as, you know, conversation is to you. You know, how do we find that creative point where we can make art out of our lives so that we recognize, you know, the challenge is to stay. The challenge is to be present with that pain. Um, As my mother was dying, I sat with her. You know, as my brother was dying, we sat with him. And there are moments of a very dark humor. Anyone who has sat with the dying knows that. There's moments of excruciating pain where you think, if I could take this from you, I would. Why isn't it me? Um, but then just there's those silences. And I think it's the silences that I find my greatest strength, whether it's the silence between someone you love, whether it's the silences um, in the natural world, in the desert, or whether it's the, the reflective moments when, when you have your pen to paper saying, how can I take this anger and not have it be a polemic? You know, it's what Obama was saying. How, how do we speak a language that heals rather than wounds? How do we speak to one another in a language that opens our hearts rather than closes them? Mm-hmm. But how, how do we do that? I mean, is, that, is, it, is, it, is this in fact the question right now? Is, is, is what we have in fact right now the question and not the answers? And I think the questions are enough. Mm-hmm. You know, if we can ask ourselves the question, then we're going to move toward the answer. And that's where for me, it really is about listening and being curious and speaking from our umbilicus, you know, not our mind and sometimes not even our heart because that's where it gets so emotional that we can't hear one another. Mm-hmm. But if I'm listening to you with my hand on my belly, you know, of where I was first connected to breath, which was my mother, you know, then, then I really can sit in the seat of presence and hear what you are saying. Not what I want to say to you, but to really listen and to find that point of humanity, that, that connected um, truth. And I find that absolutely exquisite. And that's where I want to dwell. You know, as a naturalist, my favorite places to be are, are along the ecotone. It's, it's where it's most alive. And that usually is, um, you know, the edge of the forest and the meadow. It's the edge of the ocean and the sand, you know, where the rack line occurs. It's, it's, it's that interface between peace and chaos. You know, hmm. it's, it's that creative um, edge that I think we, we find most instructive. It's also the most frightening right. because it's completely uncertain and unpredictable. And that's, again, where I choose to live. And, <clears throat> I mean, you've even spoken about finding refuge in change, comfort in the contradictory nature of things. And I think... What else is there? I, right. What else is there? And yet, you know, we know better than we've ever known before, even through science right now, that for, for, for all of us as, as human beings, but for some of us more than others, change itself is, creates fear. And I think that's what we're seeing in the interior West. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the land is changing. You know, you have in Utah big wilderness bills that are coming up. You have 
the surge for oil and gas that's right on that same um, political conversation. You have communities that are isolated um, and take great pride in that, who have a distrust of the government. And you have a black president that has those roots of prejudice. You know, it's explosive. And again, I don't know how, I don't, I don't know if there is a way in other than as neighbors. Hmm. I, I really don't. And I'm not sure that I believe in consensus. Right. I believe in, and I don't think civil... Say, say um, some more. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, I wanted both of these. I was just going to say, yeah. I don't think civil discourse is enough because no. it still, it sits on the surface. And that's what frustrates me so much, I think, about our country is, you know, how do we go deeper? How do we um, really find a more meaningful conversation rather than, you know, it's not enough to simply get a smile from your enemy. Mm-hmm. You know, that mm-hmm. that leaves me no... Um, solace. What I want to know is what are you really thinking? What are you really feeling? And how did you come to that knowledge? And it asked me, you know, I had a great question that was asked of me. Someone said, you know, when did you change? When have you ever opened your mind and and changed your opinion? Mm -hmm. You're asking me to change mine. Tell me at a point where you were going one direction and because of something you shifted. And I thought that was a great question. You know, it has to go both ways. And Where's the kind the of question we have to ask, be, a, be ready to ask each other and ourselves. Exactly. I mm-hmm. remember um, Stuart Udall, whom I loved and, and honor his passing of, of this past year. And who is he, Stuart Udall? Stuart Udall was um, President Kennedy's Secretary of Interior okay. in the 1960s. Right. One of the great figures in... Um, public lands history. I remember at the 19, um, it was the 40th anniversary of the Wilderness Act in Washington. He said, you know, Terry, there was a time in Washington when we really listened to each other. And if you can believe this, where we actually, because of a speech someone made, changed our opinion. I remember Susan Mary, who was one of the great hostess, Susan Mary Alsop, a great hostess in Washington. And we think, what a superficial title. Not at all. President Kennedy was at her dinner table when he found out about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, breaking bread together is not a small thing. And I wrote for the Progressive Magazine, um, a, a, one of my columns, I called it Dinner Table Diplomacy. You know, it's the small conversations that again loom large that I think are so crucial, where we really can not just offer our opinions, but but really ideas. I think that's what we're hungry for, and, and I think that's where um, leadership lies. You know, you said, um, I, when I was reading through all your your writings, I was kind of pulling out lines and thoughts that I want to ask you about. Well, one of them, again, was just a question. I'm just looking for what, where I wrote it down. Um, it was a really, gosh, where is it? It, it, it's a question. It's 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 this one. I mean, some of some of the things I wrote down are very poetic and original, and and this one is just plain. And yet, I think it's a question that's out there, and it's something like, what what does it mean if our institutions have failed us? <laughs> Which is, I think, a, in itself, a frightening question. I I hear that. I I I I I recall that though, and I, I think about what you just what you've just been saying, and your what you said about you know maybe. 
where we start again, because we're not going to refashion our institutions quickly. But where we, think, where we can start again, as you said, is as neighbors, which is also not without its challenges. Again, I think of, you know, so many stories, but I, I do believe our institutions are failing us. And I think it's why so many of us left our home religions and are searching for a different kind of spirituality and community. Now here it is. What happens when our institutions no longer serve us, which is different... Yeah, and I think we have to really ask those questions. You know, um, I made a commitment to the University of Utah to create a program with our Dean of Humanities and other faculty members and mentors. We've started a program, a graduate program called Environmental Humanities, where we're trying to take these disciplines out of the silos, out of their boxes, because they no longer serve us. And how do they talk to each other? You know, how does science speak to literature? How does literature speak to politics? How does politics speak to history? And and to, to open this up in an interdisciplinary, interrelated, interconnected conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I loved seeing that Bill McKibben um, published a piece in Christian Today just on Sunday about the need for civil disobedience regarding climate change. You know, I thought that was a really brave article to publish mm-hmm. in Christian Today in the shadow of of the Tucson shootings. You know, I just think everything is merging, which makes it very terrifying because the boundaries that we have always been able to count on, you know, the boxes that we were always able to put people in are dissolving. Mm-hmm. And and so how do we use this moment as as a creative conversation to see the world whole, even holy? You know, you also say you, you say you you say a lot of things about fear that I in, in your writing that I think are very useful in, in a positive way. I mean, in not just naming it, but casting it in a different light. I mean, for example, this was in an interview you said our line of fear <clears throat> is ultimately our line of growth. Again, that's a simple statement and I think we know it to be true in our personal lives, but it's something that we can appropriate with courage um, in, our, in our common life. And we don't know what the end result is going to be. Right. To me, that's my definition of faith. Hope seems beside the point these days for me. Krista, you know, I think it's interesting when you read that line back to me, what I thought about was my fear, you know, our fear in our community <clears throat> in Castle Valley of losing our land. And that happened about 10 years ago in, in sharp relief when the school trust lands, which is something all of us living in the, the American West understand. It's a checkerboard system where each square acre of land is owned by what we call the School Institutional Trust Lands Administration. And the money um, gleaned from that piece of land goes into the school coffers to benefit school children. Okay. You can imagine if you've got a checkerboard system and people want this big block of land to go to wilderness, they're saying you're robbing the children of their future. Mm. So there's been lots of trades in Western public lands. It's, it's complicated. In the simple moment, um, Castle Valley is surrounded by wilderness, by public lands, by BLM lands, and by school trust lands. School trust lands was selling a large chunk of land for development. What that meant is that our water would be compromised as well as 
as um, what we felt was the integrity of this community that was trying to survive in the desert. Long story short, um, our fear brought us together. Very disparate people, let me tell you. I mean, we're talking local, state, federal militia. We're talking, you know, people growing um, their own drugs of choice. We're talking, you know, very, very diverse. Okay. I won't get into the point because I'll get in trouble with my neighbors. But the point is, you know, we were called the People's Republic of Castle Valley. Everyone's there because, as my father would say, we're all misfits. Anyway, um, we band together. We created a school, uh, a little land trust called the Castle Rock Collaboration. We had no power, no money, no authority. And quickly we organized. Everyone figured out what their strengths were. There was a wildlife biologist. There was a photographer. Um, there was a water specialist. We even found two endangered species um, from the plant bi- botanists, um, which people questioned highly. And we, we were able to fundraise. Um, we were able to raise close to $2 million. We were able to purchase um, all the lands on the um, east side of the road and protect them and put them in safekeeping. Ultimately, what became a private concern, you could say a selfish concern, um, became a regional concern and just um, two years ago, we passed the um, Utah Lands Exchange Act, which um, traded out 5,000 acres of school trust lands and BLM lands to um, another county that was very rich in oil and gas who wanted to expand that footprint, as did that local community. Um, so one benefited wildlife community and water concerns, and the other benefited energy concerns. You know, that's a story where our line of fear actually led to our growth Mm -hmm. as a community with our own political power, with a very diverse audience that, and community that really only knew how to fight each other. I'm telling this very, very quickly, but I hope you see my point. You know, something that's just coming through so clearly in this conversation, as you tell your stories, um, is... The fact it was something that you said to me when we first began to speak that that being from the West and that that dynamics in the West and that the you know that dynamics um, that pit this part of the country maybe in particular against other uh, values and parts of the country that that that's really real that that's a part of the difference and diversity and complexity that's out there right now I mean because what you're describing is the issues that you're facing um, that that are out there in the West are existential with a, with a with a special sharpness right i mean it's about land and water um and schools and survival it's, it is it's a very different dynamic it's going to create different a different mentality and different uh different energies and we're right in the jaws of change mm-hmm. you know the west that i knew growing up is not the west that i'm living in now mm. um and there's good humor there's rancor, there's violence, there's love. It's just, you know, it's a very dynamic place. But I don't think it's any different than, than maybe, you know, other issues that are happening in other communities, except for that it's on a scale that, that really boggles the mind. When you talk about 9 million acres of wilderness up for grabs in the state of Utah, you know, that's hard for my friends in New England to understand. Right, right. Um, It's also hard, you know, it's very local. One of the turning points in our Castle Valley Land Trust was a point of humor that was tied to local story and literature. 
that was very political. There was a big sign on this disputed land that was going to be developed, and it was right across from the Colorado River. And it said, you know, land for sale. It had the phone number of a developer in Aspen and another one. Under the cover of darkness, and keep in mind, this is Ed Abbey country of the Monkey Ranch Gang and Desert Solitaire. (laughs) Under the cover of darkness, that sign disappeared. It was floated down river. It reappeared in Arches National Park, replanted in front of Double O Arch, so that when the sun rose and tourists arrived, here were these magnificent arches in the windows section for sale. And that developer got Mm. a call. Someone said, wow, we'd love to buy this. Mm. These arches are spectacular. And he thought, wow, maybe there's something I missed down in that Castle Valley piece of land. You know, it it found its way into the pages of the the, um, local newspaper. And uh, everybody knew what it meant. These people would sell our national parks if they had given a chance. (laughs) So, you know... We root our stories in real time and space with the mythology that follows us. And, and I think that's really important. You know, that when we talk on these big global scales, national scales, it becomes very abstract. Right. I think where, where the real grist is, is in our local communities. It's where the leadership it is. It's where most is at stake because it's where we call home. You know, here's something else you've written that, I think speaks to that um, experience opens us. This starts and and uh, and I think what you're talking about is taking. Oh, what I'm seeing right now is we need you know we need you and I've been talking around this not just nice words and a phrase like civil discourse. We need experiences of those things, right? We need to know they're possible. And we need to know how to build on them. So here's what you wrote: experience opens us, creates a chasm in our hearts, and expansion in our lungs allowing us to pull in fresh air to all that was stagnant. We breathe deeply, and here's the part I really like, and remember fear for what it is, a resistance to the unknown. Right, and we're back to uncertainty. Mm -hmm. Um, And being present and not averting our gaze. And it is a risk because you don't know how you're going to respond. But I really believe if we're present to the moment at hand, extraordinary things happen. That's the, that's the creativity. That's the mystery. That's the point of connection. That's the ecotone between the known and the unknown. You know, you are a very poetic writer and a literary writer. But in recent years, you've done a lot of, um, you know, op-ed writing. You've written a lot more. I think I've, I've read that you, you made an intentional choice to, to write for newspapers, to engage in that kind of writing and discourse. It surprised me a little bit. And I just, I want to hear about um, your experience of those forms, which are more common, at least in terms of how we think we resolve our differences. Um, Those forms and the forms of poetry and literature and kind of philosophy that that you also engage in. You know, I love newspapers. (laughs) I love that and I realize most people now are reading online, but whatever form a newspaper takes, it's a daily dialogue. I love print. You know, I love newspapers that on one minute you're reading Frank Rich, um, and the next minute your puppy's peeing on his words, you know? And I love (laughs) that, you know, I wrote a column for years in the Deseret News, which was the Mormon newspaper, and I loved that, you know, as a writer that spent seven years, you know, staring, watching a painting, 
at the Prado in Madrid, mm-hmm. you know, that you are forced to write out of your own life that week um, against a deadline. And you can't be very precious about that. And you know that whatever you think, oh, this is really a beautiful line, it's going to be wrapping up somebody's fish the next day. You know, I think it's, again, it's just moving the conversation forward um, with really simple things um, told through storytelling. You know, there. what do I do with my anger? I write op-ed pieces, you know, and and they're not pretty. Um, but you hope, again, that you're telling a story that will move people to action. You know, writing is a very solitary act. And I'm always struck by the paradox of, of writing. Because for me, I write to create community. But in order to do that, I'm pulled out of community into the solitude mm-hmm. of my own desk. So, you know, selfishly, when you write for a newspaper, you're going to get hit with you know, terrible letters, which I do. Right. And, you know, I loved when Senator Jennings said, do you not read the Casper Star Tribune and all those terrible things that I've said, I mean, people say about you? And I just <laughs> said, you know, unfortunately, I don't. But, you know, you conversation is good. Um, and you hope that it can enter into the bloodstream of of national thought or of local thought. You know, I've never seen anyone read a book of mine, and I don't suspect I ever will. You know, books are very different. They're, they're, they remind me of bristlecone pines. You know, they grow over time. It takes a long time mm-hmm. um, to, to sprout them. Whereas I love that newspapers, letters to the editor, um, blogs, you know, they, they belong to the moment. And we need both. Mm-hmm. We need both the considered and the momentary. So... On the other end of that um, spectrum of you, <laughs> um, your, your last book, Finding, I think this was your last book, Finding Beauty in a Broken World. Um, mm. Your book, Finding Beauty in a Broken World, took the ancient art of mosaic. Uh, that was one of the ways you got into thinking about meaning in a fragmented world. The book starts in Ravenna. It's very beautiful. So here's some of the things you said, and I wonder if you could reflect on how these observations help you think about how we live now. Um, A mosaic is a conversation between what is broken. A mosaic is a conversation with time. I think we are broken. And I think we're struggling. You know, how do we find beauty in a broken world? How, How do we make meaning out of our lives when at times it seems like there is no meaning. You know, how, how do we take these fragments and make something beautiful with them? You know, as, as, as wonderful a, as a word as healing is, which has been invoked in these days and it was invoked in the, by President Obama after Tucson, I, I wonder if mosaic, <laughs> if building a mosaic might not in fact be a more realistic uh, image at least, I at had a least really interesting. In it's interesting, Krista. You know, I have a friend, Linda Asher, who's a translator of Milan Kundera. She was an editor for years at the New Yorker in international fiction, in particular. You know, and she said something very provocative the other day, where she said, "You know, I'm not sure eloquence is enough. I'm not sure language is enough." Mm-hmm. And that really stopped me because, for me, words. Words are everything. And I know for her, words are everything. But she said, you know, that's too easy. 
She said it's like being too beautiful. Um, and she brought it back down to the, the notion of action. And I realized, I said, thank you for reminding me. And I think that was the power for me in making mosaics. It took me out of my head, into my hands, into creating something real with other people. I mean, mosaic by its very nature is a collaborative process. Right. And we cannot do this alone. And, you know, there are days where I think I cannot get out of bed. My despair is so great. And in those moments, I'm aware of, you know, the limitation of my own imagination. Imagination shared, create collaboration. Collaboration creates community. And in community, anything is possible. Whether it's the community of prairie dogs, you know, that create a home, an ecosystem for 247 species, from, you know, burrowing owls to rattlesnakes to black widows to pronghorn antelope, you know, to the collaborative process that a community artist like Lily Ye, coming out of the really rough neighborhoods outside Philadelphia, could go to Rwanda and say to a group of women, genocide survivors, how can I help? What do you need? What can we create together? And it was there she learned from these mothers that they were still carrying the bones of their beloved in the folds of their skirt, wrapped in cloth behind their beds, underneath a rock behind their homes. And what she learned is that they needed, they were asking for a, a dignified place to bury the bones of their families, of their children. Mm. And together they sat down on a piece of paper and, and drafted what a memorial would look like. And Lily said, I will come back. She came back with the team. And there, Hutus, Tutsis, Rwandans, Americans, human beings together, created a memorial, literally out of the rubble of war, mosaic. Hmm. I think in that moment I learned, you know, beauty is not optional, but it is a strategy for survival. Okay, so what do you mean when you say that? Beauty it's that is I, not optional. And what kind you know, of beauty are you? What 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 do you mean by beauty? What what are all the I things that in your mind when you say that word? I love my father. You know, it's years ago he said to me, "I'm so glad you have a hobby." And I thought, "What? I don't golf. I don't play croquet." You know, he meant writing. <laughs> when I was going to Rwanda, he said, "I cannot believe you're going to Rwanda, you know, to do an art project." You know, I think they need something more than that. I mean, he was really critical and rightfully so. But I think what I learned from Lily Ye is that, you know, I saw the women, their eyes were turned inward. I can't even imagine the, the level of grief and anguish of, of that kind of war, of surviving a genocide, and, and wishing maybe you hadn't. Um, but as those women worked, as, as they watched their children draw and have their children's drawings transposed onto their, these gray stucco government housing, um, you know, become wild with color, with flowers and, you know, cows with 20 little teats, you know, and then breaking up mosaic and, and making mosaics at the altar of where their children's bones were buried. You know, you realize this is beautiful, but it is not optional. It is not secondary. Mm -hmm. It is not peripheral. Suddenly their eyes were turned outward. And now I can tell you, you know, Six years later, these women have sewing cooperatives. They have water projects. Um, they have a sunflower oil 
um, business where the prisoners, the very men who murdered their families, are planting sunflower seeds that they later harvest. That's what I'm talking about. And, if you and think I'm of, interested mm-hmm. in the act, the actions that come out of the reflection and the deeper meaningful conversations that go beyond words into really changing the very structure and nature of, of, of community. So in, in, in American public life right now, you know, are you, where are you seeing beauty? Where are you looking for beauty? Where, where you know, what, what comes into your imagination when you talk about beauty as not being optional but essential to our survival? I mean, what comes to my mind immediately is, you know, the beauty of coming into this studio today. There were pink clouds, you know, forming over Great Salt Lake that still holds me like a, a lover. Um, it's the beauty of the land, again, where we began, beginning, ending with the land. This may surprise you, but I found tremendous beauty and meaning in the Gulf of Mexico this year that absolutely shattered me. Um, there are certain things I wish I had never seen. And on day 100 of the Maconda blowout with you know, five million barrels of, of crude oil spewing across the Gulf of Mexico. We were 800 feet above the Gulf for four and a half hours with a barefoot pilot named Tom Hutchings. For as far as we could see, for as wide as we could see, for as long as we could bear it, oil. All we could see was oil on the day, the very day that our government said it was largely gone. The other side of that was as we were returning to... Mobile Bay in Alabama, we saw two beautiful dolphins mating. They looked like a yin-yang. They looked like the, the I Ching um, in these turquoise clear waters. And you think they've survived, that there is an inherent resiliency in the land, in the human spirit that we can have faith in. Mm-hmm. That's, that's where I found beauty. I found beauty in the stories and the courage of the people who were so sick from the Gulf Um, who had the courage to speak out. And I'm still in contact with them. And, you know, they cried. We all cried. And and they all apologized. And I kept saying, what kind of human being would you be if you weren't crying Mm -hmm. over the magnitude of this, this sorrow, this disaster, the loss of your homeland, the loss of your livelihood, the loss of, of the land and the waters that you've always counted on, you know, and it was one thing, Katrina. It's again the mm-hmm. Gulf. You know, how do they keep going? How long does resiliency last? And I think it lasts as long as we have a community that can stand. And the communities are standing. You know, that's where I find beauty. Where, what, what were you doing down there? Were you, did you do some, some work down there? Or were you, did you just go to see it, to experience it? You know, I was obsessed because I didn't trust what I was hearing, hmm. and I was able to get a uh, writing assignment. It's you know, it's the only thing I know how to do, Krista, is, <laughs> okay. is take a pencil and a pad of paper. And hmm. and I I was on assignment with Orion magazine, and I wrote a piece right. called "The Gulf Between Us." Um, oh, right. And um, it was it it changed things for me. I changed. You know, I have been against offshore drilling. But in talking to a lot of the Cajun people and the fishermen and women, you know, if you take away the fish and if you take away the oil, the, the jobs, then you literally have nothing. That would be an example where by, by listening 
to the people that I didn't agree with. Mm -hmm. They convinced me my view was too narrow. Mm. Um, And I understood them as I understand my brothers who work in the oil and gas fields. You know, Gillette was transferred to uh, Port Fouchon. And that's where, you know, the struggles of the interior West are not so unlike the struggles in in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, So again, we find our common ground. One thing that I did as I came back home, you know, how do you contain this emotion? How do you contain the anger that we were talking about and transform it into sacred rage? I have a friend, Lori Thal, who is a glassmaker. Years ago, Brooke and I were in London, and we were at Nottingham in this flea market. We saw this very peculiar instrument. And having worked in museums, I'm fascinated by objects and the performance of an artifact. Hmm. It turns out that it was a Victorian artifact that collected the tears of mourners. Have you ever heard of that? No. And you would collect the tears of the mourners and put them in a tear vial. And you would seal the tear vial. And as soon as the, the tears that you collected had evaporated, the mourning period was done. Or maybe you would decide to take those tears and, and pour them into a larger mm. body of water to be absorbed. So I had this idea. I thought, how can we create a container for our sorrow? Not shy away from it or be ashamed right. of it, but to really honor it. And so, Lori, I asked her, I said, would you create a collaborative with me where we could make tear vials? Because I want to be able to send them to those I inter- the people I interviewed. And so... In December, we made these beautiful tear vials. You know, she would blow glass and, and we would have these conversations about grief and love and sorrow and, to use your word, healing, um, this mosaic of emotions. And they were absolutely stunning. And it was such a wonderful way to honor um, what I saw happening in the Gulf by way of, of um, presence. You know, that speaks to the human need for ritual. Doesn't it? And it's something that in this culture we've so lost a memory of. You know, I I remember having a conversation about this a couple years ago with someone who's working with veterans coming home, and he talked about how at other times in other cultures there there were rituals for bringing people home from war, right? Yes. And acknowledging the drama of that and the trauma of it. And uh, that's an interesting idea to invoke also right now as you and I are talking about how do we, how do we make the idea of civic discourse both more real and bigger? How do we, how do we learn to live differently? You know, maybe ritual is something we need to rediscover too in all kinds of ways. And I think it goes back to your point of how our institutions are no longer serving us. Mm-hmm. And I think that if we're present... And if we're really in that deeper place of communion, of listening to one another's stories and sharing our stories, then there's an organic truth that emerges. So that when I came home from the Gulf, tear vials came to mind. And again, we can make something beautiful to honor the emotion that has been expressed and that we can create containers mm. um, that can move us to the next place of our spiritual evolution. Right. I mean, the idea of containers is so so attractive because 
I think if we, the despair a lot of us are feeling about, let's go back to that word vitriol, the vitriol in our public life. You know, the idea of finding ways to contain that, um, contain it in honoring, honor it and contain it, as opposed to contain it, shut it down, which won't work. Or to walk away. Or to walk away. Yeah, again, to stay, to stay present, um, whether it's with our home, whether it's with our family, our region. I mean, it, it's these concentric circles of, of concern um, that, you know, that keep moving back and forth like water. Mm-hmm. I loved a friend and I were talking and I said, I want to give you a tear vial. And I said, and she said, I would, I would like that. And I would like another one because there's someone that I would like to give one to. And I said, really? And she said, yes, a friend who just gave birth. Hmm. And that shocked me because, you know, you think of birth as being this celebratory time of hopes and dreams. And I said, why would you give a, a, a young mother, a first mother, a tear vial? And she said to prepare her for her own vulnerability. Mm, right. And, you know, that just made me weep. Mm. Um, you know, just knowing what I felt at 50 when Luiga Kumba, you know, came into our home and I suddenly found myself in that role. Mm-hmm. So containment, containers, um, again, the paradox, so that we really can let go and um, and be open to what is to come, this world becoming. I want to ask you about an observation you've made that I think is provocative and that that flows out of this side of you that has been, that I was trained as a scientist, that is, you know, I would say you haven't just been involved as an environmentalist, but in wilderness, right? wilderness preservation. So anyway, you've said that, you observed that a lack of intimacy with the natural world has contributed to our lack of intimacy with each other. Say some more about that. <laughs> you know, it comes to my mind. Um, we... Brooke and Louie and I uh, just got back from Mexico. I wanted to see what was happening to the Gulf of Mexico from another country's point of view. Anyway, we found ourselves on this beach, um, pretty remote, with two other families. And one of the children, it was a family of two from New York City. And the little boy caught a barracuda, a very large barracuda, I might add. And the fisherman uh, was very excited. We were going to have it for dinner. And he cut off the head and he gave the little boy um, the head and took the body away to prepare it. Well, I got very, very excited thinking, oh, have you ever seen the lens of an eye? And he was going, no. And the parents were getting a little concerned. And, you know, we found this kind of dry, rusty knife that had washed up on shore and then a club and so we started performing surgery on this poor barracuda's eyes and you know we went through all the aqueous vitreous you know membranes and out pops this incredible crystal it's like a crystal ball I don't know if you've ever seen the actual lens of an eye we were so excited and the parents were taking video and then it just so happened I promise you I'm telling the truth a man walked up and said I just happen to be an endangered species biologist have you looked for the amazing bone in the ear. So then we, you know, the head of the barracuda is being even further diminished. Anyway, 
we were very intimate with the natural world with this barracuda, you know, in that moment. And then that night we ate, and it was sacramental. I can tell you this beautiful barracuda that became part of our bodies. You know, the, the intimacy we had, the intimacy we had in that moment of, of really being with this barracuda and then eating it as part of our flesh. Well, I can tell you that when we all left, we were all in tears. We were all family. And there was an intimacy that was really unexpected. You know, I don't know if that's what you're getting at, but I just, you know, it's real. It's not abstract. It's messy. It's dangerous. It's exquisite. And again, we're sitting at the table together breaking bread. And then I have to tell you the most wonderful thing is um, the woman who was the cook, um, her name was Francesca. She came out and told us that she was a healer and that it was very important for her to eat the eyes of Snapper because it enabled her to see. So all of a sudden, our world just expands to another level of of insight and, again, ritual and necessity. Hmm. What else has been on your mind lately that you... What have you been thinking? What were you thinking that you'd, you'd like to talk about that maybe we haven't gotten to? You know, Krista, I love your questions, and I guess you know you try what's been on my mind. You know, how do you be of use? You know, how do you engage? Um, how can we take whatever gift might be ours and give it away, share it? Um, you know, each in our own way, each in our own time, each with, you know, the talents that are ours. I guess that's what I've been thinking about. You know, what what can I do? It goes back to that ridiculous question at a dinner party. You know, what do you do? And I said, about what? About which thing? You know, again, I I think about Obama. You know, how do we widen the circle of our concerns and then the paradox for me it's always a narrowing and a deepening you know how how can I be a better neighbor right you said sometimes the most radical act is to stay home and I think that's that's right and it's certainly my challenge mm. um, because I realize I'm complicit you know what is the gulf between us you know that oil that I saw for as far as I could see that's me um, it's my family's livelihood. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you reconcile the contradictions? You know, I think about Clarice Lispector, a wonderful writer, Argentinian writer, and she says, I now know what I want, to be able to stand still in the middle of the sea. I guess that's what I'm thinking about. You know, how do we ground ourselves in these enormous oscillations of, of this point in time and be present? And useful. You know, you have been part of what I would say has been a growing movement, um, awareness about the natural world. Um, I mean, you've been thinking, I mean, you've, you've been steeped in it, I think, from, from childhood. Um, 
But you've been out there talking about ecology and the environment and the land, and now lots of people are talking about that. People are waking up to these things. Again, we don't quite know what the answers are, where it's going, but it's clear that this must be concern uh, of concern to us. It, I mean, it, and it's one of these places where, uh, let's say, when we talk, when we get, when we drill down to what that means, we start talking about really ordinary things like food, and 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 a lot of what's coming out of that is pointing us back to what's local, right? Mm. <laughs> so I wonder, I just wonder if you think about, if you'd reflect on how um, that whole sphere of waking up to the natural world and our place in it, which has many dimensions, um, what that experience is teaching us that might be useful in this political moment, this cultural moment. That's such a good question. Talk to me just a little bit more about it, about what you mean. Um, so, okay, so for example, I'm trying to think. I think it was Bill McKibben who I spoke with about, uh, sometime in the last year. And he was talking about how, um, you know, farmer's markets are something that that we're rediscovering for all kinds of reasons that make sense in terms of how we're thinking about farming and food and uh, and and regional economies, right? There are all these practical reasons, but that one of perhaps one of the most important things that's coming out of that is that we're rediscovering community. That that in fact the the exhilaration and the gratification of that is as much that you bump into your neighbors and that you talk to people, as opposed to having this this um, abstract, uh, um, dehumanized experience of buying food. So I just right. I wonder if there are other if there are things that you would point out that are being learned in this new kind of encounter with the environment with wilderness and clearly that's hard it's not like it's going one direction you've been in the middle of a lot of big fights right so it's 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 difficult but are there things being learned <clears throat> about living with difference about grappling with difference but holding you know trying to see some overriding goods um, that might be useful um, as models. You, you know, I think about um, Great Salt Lake growing up as a child. You know, you went to it once. You ran in, you screamed, and you ran out. Mm. And you drove home pickled, you know, right. because it, kids have scratches on their legs. And, you know, it was a horrible experience. Today, what, I'm 55, um, in 50 years in my lifetime, Great Salt Lake is is being celebrated. And every year in May, we have a Great Salt Lake Bird Festival. You know, that would have been unthinkable mm. then. You know, and the connectivity that's being made of the, the birds in Great Salt Lake, you know, are coming down from the Arctic or going down to Mexico, even into the Gulf of Mexico. So that, you know, when we see a tragedy, like the oil spill in the Gulf, you know, that, that doesn't just affect people who live in Louisiana or Alabama people or Mississippi. People know their connection to it. Yeah. Uh -huh. Those are, you know, I heard one of my nieces say, you know, those are our pelicans too. Hmm. So there's that connectedness mm -hmm. that is local, that, that extends beyond our home ground. I think there's something that we are losing that I, I really grieve and I worry about. And that's where I think it does come back to education. You know, I think we're losing an ecological literacy, a biological literacy, that we no longer know the names of things. Mm. You know, mm. great blue heron, long-billed curlew, 
uh, cinnamon teal, blue-winged teal, green-winged teal, if we don't know who we live among, then when they vanish, there's no one to mourn that loss. I think it's very important that, that we establish a phenology so that we know that when the coyotes are howling, you know, with their young in August, it's also when the young meadowlarks are hatching. You know, the interconnectivity, again, we go back to this same thing of how the, it all comes down to relationships, mm-hmm. to place, to paying attention, to staying, to listening, to learning, of, of a heightened curiosity with other. Mm-hmm. And we can go the route of love of other, or we can go the route of fear. And I think too often we go the route of fear and we shut down. Because if we open to love, then we're going to get hurt and we're going to get angry. That's a really, really important point to make. That's a really important point to make, that love is not something squishy and romantic. It's fierce. It is absolutely fierce. But the other side of love is that empathy. And, you know, I, I always wondered why when someone died in my father's neighborhood in his community, he always went the next day to their house. He didn't call. He just showed up. And I thought, what an amazing thing, because I think so often when we hear someone's died or we want to give them privacy or we don't want to bother them or impose. Mm -hmm. And it was only last night I heard him say to Louis, you know, yes, today is the anniversary of my wife's passing, but tomorrow is the hard day because when I woke up, I was alone and there was no one there. You know, that's love. And the other side of that love and loss is the empathy rooted in action, mm-hmm. where my father is there on that next day to, with his friends. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what I'm talking about. And, and so I think it's about making commitments um, to do the real work, the hard work, because ultimately that's where I have found the most joy. Mm. That may be your last word. I, I wanted to ask you about, you, you wrote in um, The Open Space of Democracy, you wrote about a 2003 commencement address you gave at the University of Utah. And um, you mentioned in that one of your early mentors, uh, someone, an environmental activist from Alaska, um, you said Marty that you Mary. listened to her, that she said, don't worry about what you will do next. If you take one step with all the knowledge you have, with all the knowledge you have, there is usually just enough light shining to show you the next step. What's your next step right now coming out of these kinds of deliberations or has it shown itself? Or what do you feel is the last one you took that's going to show you that? I love that quote from Marty Murray mm-hmm. who so many of us regard as, you know, the grandmother of conservation who did such beautiful work in establishing protection for the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. And I think about that every day, you know, just enough light shining on the next step to show you the way. I'm thinking about voice, Krista, which is a side angle, I think, to what we've been talking about, you know, in terms of deeper discourse and meaningful conversation. And I'll end with a story. Um, And it's taken me 24 years 
to be able to bring this to consciousness. Well, just say first voice. You say voice. What do you mean? What do you mean voice? And why, how is that a side angle? It's something different from discourse. When my mother was dying, um, I was in bed with her, rubbing her back, and she said, Terry, I'm leaving you my journals. And I didn't know she kept them. And she said, but you must promise me one thing, that you won't look at them until after I'm gone. And I gave her my word. She passed. A month went by. My father was gone. My brothers were out of the house. I was cleaning. And I thought, today. Today's a good day to, to find my mother's journals. And I found them exactly where she had said they would be. Um, hidden in the closet, three shelves, filled with journals, each one hand-picked, each one bound in cloth, gingham, denim, um, flowered, so on and so forth. And I took a deep breath. My mother was such a private person, and I thought, finally, I will be able to know what she was thinking, where she was. And I opened the first journal, and it was blank. I opened the second journal, it was blank, as was the third. All of my mother's journals were empty. That's what I'm thinking about. Hmm. How do you understand that? I don't. And that's the mystery, that's the, you know, I don't know. And that's what's got me thinking about voice. You know, what is it? How do we find it? How do we keep it? How do we use it? Hmm. Um, And as Louis was saying, coming from Rwanda, surviving the genocide, you know, each of us has a voice we just choose to use it differently. Hmm. Well, thank you so much. This has been great. I can't thank you enough for the depth of your questions and <laughs> your capacity to listen. It, well, it takes us all to a deeper level. Thank and you I, so Thank much. you for that. I think I've I think I've heard over across the years that you were listening. I think people have told me, and it just made me so happy. It's, so it's just great to talk to you finally. It's my weekly ritual. (laughs) Thank you. And please take special care. Of myself or of this conversation? I'm going to do both. No, of you. Of (laughs) you. You give so much. And, you know, it's not without a cost. I know that. And I just, I really thank you for um, both the internal and external preparations and what what you put out in the world. Thank you. I hope we meet in person one day. I'm sure we will. I look forward to it. Yeah. And I just want you to know I have a shell from the Gulf sitting here, and I would love to send it to you. Okay. um, Just as a talisman of our conversation. All right. Well, thank you. Who have you... You've been talking to Nancy, emailing with Nancy. Is that right? Susan. Susan. Okay. So, and Susan will also... uh, It's possible we we might have some questions um, about facts, and we'll let you know what's happening with this. Perfect. And okay. then I can get her address, yes. from, your address from her. Yes, absolutely. Krista, thank you so much. Thank take, you. Oh, you take I care, just, too. Yes. Bless you. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you, Jesse, for all your help. It's long, wasn't it? What time is it? Boy,